You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We're pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is John Thompson. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. He is many things, that's for sure. But he is now the new chairman of the Indiana Chamber of Commerce Board of Directors. Mr. Thompson, it's nice to see you. How are you? I'm doing great. Things thank are you going for, very well. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, congratulations on your latest appointment. Talk to us, please, before we want to talk about your career and how you came here from Baltimore. And did you grow up loving the Baltimore Colts, Colts and now you love the Indianapolis Colts? We got a lot to talk about, but I definitely want to start with your new uh, position because it's certainly one with a lot of, of honor and a lot of influence. Um, well, I've been on the Indiana Chamber board about uh, uh, five years now. And, um, you know, and then I've been on the executive committee for three years. Uh, and I'll tell you, you know, the Indiana Chamber, the focus is economic development, you know, creating a a better business environment, but not for the end point of having, just having a better business environment. A better business environment is, is better for everyone. Uh, it creates, you know, it creates an environment where you attract, retain, and create uh, high value jobs, you know, fast growing companies, uh, uh, high paying jobs, high-paying career op opportunities, opportunities for advancement. So one of my uh, key focuses in life has been economic development. And I think the Indiana Chamber is certainly the pinnacle of that. It's both an honor, I would assume, and perhaps, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, of course, but maybe perhaps a bit dismaying to hear first African-American chairman of the board. What does that designation, that history mean to you? But on the flip side, what will it mean to you when you were no longer the first African-American chairman? You know, in, in 2022, it's always, and I guess I became chairman in 2021, very end of 2021. You know, you, you're you're a little disheartened when you hear things like you're the first African American, you know, you know, in a position, um, 
at this particular time, because generally that's happened by now. Um, I will say in this case, I don't think there was an effort on anyone's part, certainly in recent years, to uh, you know prevent an African-American from becoming chairman or coming on the board or becoming a part of a member of the executive committee or a senior officer or, or, or chairman. Um, you know, so when I came onto the board with my background of leadership in organizations like this, you know, I have a lot of experience leading organizations. So I think that was was certainly a part of it. Um, and then the other part, um, economic development is, you know, so important to me that I'm involved in so many organizations that the fit um, and the synergies with those organizations is a key part of it as well. I would hate to be your executive assistant to try to figure out your calendar. How much of a mess is your calendar as you try to balance all these philanthropic and civic responsibilities while also being CEO of four companies? Um, you know, it's funny. I had an executive assistant at Mays Chemical. I didn't really use her as an executive assistant, she served more in that role for my staff because technology is my executive assistant. <laughs> now, many people would say, well, John, you, you, need, you don't have one, but you need one. Well, I do get a lot of help from my staff in terms of when I need it. You know, they're there to help. And my wife, who's been with me um, you know, in accounting and administration in, in several of my companies has always been a help too. Although she's retired, you know, I won't let her completely retire. So I get help there. But basically, I use technology to manage it. So it's kind of like when you and I were scheduling this, I just pulled it up on my calendar. It does get to be a challenge when you're trying to juggle and set up all the meetings for the next year. But, you know, I insist that if I'm on the board, someone send me all the invitations and I accept all of them and then go through the calendar and manage the overlaps as opposed to, um, you know, doing that on the front end. So there are a number of things that I do, but technology is a big help. You know, it's kind of like we used to have someone type a letter for us. But the day you go in and, you know, the word uh, 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 software uh, manages all of that for you. The header, the footer, the margin, the tabs, it's all it's all there. Excel, uh, PowerPoint, these, these are all very user friendly tools. So. You can manage a lot on your own. Google Meet. I can set up a Zoom or a Google Meet in 10 seconds. You know, it's all user friendly. And I've never gone through any directions, Robert. I just kind of get on there and, and use it. <laughs> well, we're talking about Indie Chamber, Central Indiana Corporate Partnership, the Indiana Economic Development Corporation the Greater Indianapolis Progress Committee, the Eskenazi Health Foundation, Riley Children's Hospital Foundation, along with the Indiana Chamber of Commerce. I know I left a few out. Very, very few people. I really think you're in the, the Jim Morris, P.E. McAllister, Yvonne Shaheen class of, of and, and so many others we could name, of people who give of themselves to, to Indianapolis and to these organizations. How do you decide whether to accept the invite to be a part of the board or or be involved somehow? It's got to be a tough balancing act. And at some point, you can't say yes to everything and everybody. You, you, you know, for me, Robert, it's, uh, you know, I grew up in that old 1960, 70 era of health, education and welfare. And so. Those are kind of the pillars that I subscribe to. So 
I'll deal with them in order. You mentioned uh, Eskenazi Health Foundation, Riley Children's Foundation. Um, now I've been more and more involved in, in, in IU uh, Health uh, Foundation. Um, and, and I'm still involved in, in Eskenazi and uh, supportive of Riley. I went off the board after 10 years, but uh, still very supportive. So from a health standpoint, you know, I believe in health equity. And, um, and so, you know, those organizations, uh, if you look at Eskenazi or Riley, they're providing health care to groups regardless of what resources those groups bring to the table. You know, so with, with Eskenazi, they're serving the broader community, the, the least, the lonely, the left out, wh whomever have a health care need, they're there. And they're there with excellent health care. So excellent. That's where I get my primary care at, at Eskenazi. Be there on Monday morning for a, an, a, an appointment. Um, and, um, and, and that's at one of the clinics. So I, I believe the health care is great at Eskenazi. They've built a world-class hospital, I'd say the best in the country for serving underserved communities. And, uh, and then when I look at Riley, if a kid needs a, need, need a million dollars of health care and their family have no way of paying it, they don't have the uh, health care coverage to, to, to pay it, Riley's going to make it happen. And, uh, and, and, and that's unique in, 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 in healthcare. And we have kids that come to Riley that need million dollar kind of therapies, whether it's surgery, the pre-treatment and the post-treatment, and we do it often. And so that, that's the health part. The education part you know, is, is, is giving, whether it's two organizations that support pre-K, K through 12, you know, so if you look at a United Way and the kind of work that, that they do, I, you know, given more dollars there than board service, but, you know, helping there. Uh, both my universities that educated me, I was a poor inner, kid, inner city kid, didn't have a dime to pay for education. And both Cornell and Columbia provided me with scholarships that basically I didn't need any student loans whatsoever. Just the scholarships covered everything. So I give back significantly there. And uh, Columbia, I'm also on that uh, the business school board where I received my MBA. And that MBA made such a difference in my life, just like Cornell's education made a big difference. And so, you know, I work and do, do, donate time and, and treasure there, time, talent, and treasure to make sure others have similar opportunities uh, that I had. And then the economic development is the welfare piece um, because my, my welfare is working to uh, enable everyone to, to live the American dream uh, through career and through job and job development, skill development, job development, career, you know, enhancement. So, you know, if you, you mentioned uh, the Indie Chamber, I chaired that nine years ago and I serve on the board of Central Indiana Corporate Partnership. But in every case, those organizations, along with the Indiana Chamber, is working, and certainly the IEDC, the uh, Indiana Economic Development Corporation, that's their number one charter mission uh, value proposition is attracting, retaining, creating, and growing businesses that can pay increasingly uh, higher paying jobs. Uh, increasingly, and uh, and a career where you can continue to grow, you know, in, into a livable wage and beyond. 
You know, you so mentioned... that's kind of how I make my decisions. Education's a funny thing. I'm an art collector. I believe that uh, art and culture is a key part of education and human development also. And so, you know, I encourage and try to create work to support art institutions that support the, the broader community. So when you get together with uh, previous Leaders and Legends podcast guest, Brad Chambers, Secretary of Commerce, President of the IEDC, how much economic development do you discuss and how much art do you discuss? Well, I was with Secretary Chambers on Tuesday. The meeting was around economic development, but he and I at the end kind of huddled in the corner and discussed for 10 minutes uh, our recent art acquisitions, (laughs) (laughs) complete with photos on the cell phone. Uh, Art Miami Basel, both he and I were too busy to attend but we had people down there that was uh, making selections for us. And I think he was able to acquire works there. And so was I. You mentioned also at the beginning of your previous answer about serving on boards and dropping off. Obviously, when you came to Indianapolis uh, to work at Mays Chemical, you weren't sitting on any boards and you worked your way up to that, that honor, that level. But how important is it for folks like you, successful, respected, involved, to drop off boards and allow the next generation to take your place? Well, you know, see, I'm glad you you, you raised that question. You know, this is a community of two million people. And, um, you know, Two heads are better than one, three is better than two, and four is better than three. And then also fresh thoughts and fresh minds. You know, you come onto a board with a set of ideas, and then you interact with others, and those ideas are shaped and molded. Consensus are built kind of around a collection of ideas. After nine years, in some cases, six, you've served enough. Give someone else a chance to come on. You have two million people in this community. There are many other great leaders out of that two million, and in many cases, younger leaders that can come on with, you know, different approaches, different thoughts, and emphasize different things. And so, I believe you want to constantly freshen it up. So I try not to go back onto a board. You know, we have, excuse me, mandatory limits. Generally, some cases is six and others is nine. You set off a year and then come back on. And I've only come back on in one case and I'll only do it if I think Well, obviously, they have to think there's a need, but then I have to think there's a need, too. And uh, if there's not a need for me to come back on, I won't. May I ask who who or what is that one case? Well, in that one case, it was Eskenazi. And I had been around through a major transition of Eskenazi Health Foundation and Hospital. And... I went off after my mandatory nine. And so they wanted me to come back on as board chair. And it made sense for me to come back on as board chair, given that I was there from almost the beginning. Eskenazi's foundation was very small and limited, say, if you go back. 20 years, you know, even more recent than that, you know, 17 years, I'll say. Um, If you go back 18 years, it was very limited. And, uh, you know, a group of leaders came together and took it to a next to, to, to a much higher level and accomplished quite a bit by doing it. Not just for us here, but a roadmap for other hospital, Mm -hmm. city, county hospitals 
uh, like Eskenazi around the country. And so I was there from the beginning of that. And so after we built the hospital and all of that, and we're going to another level now, it made sense for me to come back on and serve as chair for two years to bridge that gap between the beginning and the new generation of leaders that have taken over after me. Very capable leaders like John Ackerman was my uh, um, vice chair and became chair after me. And then uh, now Bill McCarthy is, is chair. And so, but neither of them was there at the beginning of the, of the transformation of Eskenazi uh, hospital or foundation. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is John Thompson, an Indianapolis businessman and a friend. He is the new chairman of the Indiana Chamber of Commerce. He is also the chairman and CEO of four businesses, including Thompson Distribution and Beyond Countertops. He's a member of several boards and commissions. When you came to Indianapolis, because I want to talk a little bit about your background, my understanding from doing some research is you just kind of, I hate to say cold called Mr. Bill Mays, but is that kind of how it happened? You just took a flyer? Uh, totally how it happened. Um, we didn't have fax machines back then. That was 1983. In the August, every Tuesday in the Wall Street Journal back in the 80s, they had a small business section uh, in the marketplace section, that center section of the journal. And they they had a cover article on a fast-growing minority-owned chemical distributor in Indianapolis. And when I came out of engineering school, um, I went straight into sales in the New England area, based out of, well, my office was New York, but um, I worked out of my home out of the Boston area. And, and up there, there are, there are smaller manufacturers, uh, except in pulp and paper. Other than that, they're, they're, at that time, they were pr- predominantly smaller manufacturers. And so we supplied our chemicals through distributors. They, they weren't large enough to supply on a direct basis, except the pulp and paper industry. So we supplied them through distributors. And uh, so I called on a number of chemical distributors and got to know them well and their businesses. And so, you know, I, I made a decision at that time. I made a decision at an early age that I would be an entrepreneur. But I made a decision at that time right out of undergrad school that my business would be a chemical distributorship. So after I got my MBA and I had spent three years at McKinsey, I was in that third year and I left McKinsey and worked with a uh, consulting firm. Um, I had my own independent consulting firm working with large corporations as they were building their minority business development programs. So I had found Mace Chemical via that. They were in the database, but I couldn't tell a lot about the company. But in that Wall Street Journal article, it really gave me a great view into Mays Chemical and Bill Mays and his background. And so from there, I could see that Mays Chemical was a really good company with a lot of potential. So we didn't have fax machines then, nor cell phones. A buddy of mine uh, Rich Vinegar from Equico Capital, he called me. He said, hey, John, you want to start a chemical distributorship? Man, I found one out in Indianapolis. Let's meet, have lunch. I'll give you a copy of this article. And he did that. And uh, I got the article, left lunch, went back to my office and called Bill Mays. And, you know, Bill almost didn't take the call because <laughs> it was coming from New York City. And he's like, oh, that's some stockbroker trying to get me to open an account. (laughs) But for some reason, he took the call. And uh, from there, 
we talked and I flew out a month or two later and and um and we decided there was a really, really strong fit, which there was very, very strong fit. And so and what year so, was that? Huh? What year was that? That that was 1983. And by the time I flew out, by the time I moved out here, it was February 5th, 1984. So I, in one week, it'll be my 38th anniversary. And you were so powerful and so influential and had so much juice that the Baltimore Colts decided to follow you out here to Indianapolis. Six weeks later, you know, <laughs> Dave Frick tries to argue that he brought him here. But I told Dave, I said, Dave, I have a statistical data on my side. So clearly I brought him here six weeks after I got here. Uh, and that was always my team from the day I was born. Uh, six weeks after I got here, uh, the Colts, you know, moved out here. Uh, you know, in all seriousness, it was coincidence, but the Colts have been my team from cradle to now. Um, when I came home from Johns Hopkins Hospital, born that's where I was born. When I came home, my crib was draped in blue and white. I mean, that's it, it goes back. Johnny Unitas got to Baltimore. In, in 1954, the year I was born, that's when he got there. And uh, and I've been a Colt fan all that time. Even in New York City, I became a Nick fan in New York City, but never a Colt fan. I'm never a Giant or Jet fan, because remember, uh, right. Joe Namath stole the Super Bowl from us in Super Baltimore. Bowl three. So I hated the Jets. and. Uh, so I was always a Colt fan. And uh, when I got here and saw that they were moving out here, I was really happy. In fact, Robert, I, I called my mother. I said, Ma, you know, these people out here in Indiana, their elevator don't reach the top floor. They built this big, beautiful stadium, but they don't have a team. Ha ha ha. I called her back two or three weeks later. Ma, their elevator reached the top floor. <laughs> They have a team. It's your team. <laughs> she said, that's not funny. <laughs> I mean, but do you, could you mean as it was happening? Because we've had uh, David Frick on the podcast and he's talked about how it happened. We've also had uh, Colts uh, COO Pete Ward yep. on the podcast. Who's to, to those two men right there are as good as it gets. Right. Absolutely amazing. But as it was happening, were you like, I simply can't believe it. Like, what are the odds that that would have happened? I mean, of all the teams, my home team, you know, and I love the Colts, man, always have. So I was very happy. But of course, I had nothing to do with it. I didn't know Dave Frick or Pete Ward at that time. They're both good friends now. Although Pete was there in Baltimore That's at right. my high school was across the street from Memorial Stadium. And, you know, in fact, uh, it's the oldest high school rivalry in the country. And we still today play a rival high school, Poly, uh, 10 o'clock every Thanksgiving morning, the City Poly game. And uh, the rivalry go back to 1875. And uh, the game, playing the football, game goes back to 1913 or something like that back when the helmets were just flat little pieces <laughs> of leather you know? concussion machines you know have you had a chance to tell this story or laugh about this with uh, mr jim ursay uh i have it with jim uh but i have with pete ward many times pete's a good friend and i've shared it with pete many many times and Pete know it well because Pete spent years in Baltimore, so he was very familiar with it. Mayor Greg Ballard's favorite team growing up was also the Baltimore Colts. And okay. his his hero player was Raymond Berry. And Raymond Berry showed up at an Indianapolis Colts game one time, and Mayor Ballard got to get his picture taken with him. And 
I was like, now that's that's some irony right there. It is. Now, Raymond Barry, that was some receiver. Um, uh, absolutely. He was one of our star players. My favorite was always uh, uh, Johnny United. You know, I still today compare quarterbacks to Johnny United. Man. <laughs> you know, there's something to be said. Obviously, Tom Brady has his seven Super Bowls. But there's some there's a there's an argument to be made, and I'm going to let you make it because you can make it better than I can. That Johnny Unitas is the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL, and the argument is their victory is it 1958 over the New York Giants ushered in the era of televised professional football beyond just watching the game, and they made it a phenomenon. And Johnny Unitas was the first star quarterback of the TV age. And TV has changed football and made it what is really America's not pastime, but America's passion. Right. That's a good point. That's a great point. And I tell you, you know, I was a kid right there in Baltimore, but, you know, kids all over the country felt the same way about Johnny Unitas. I mean, he was all of our favorite uh, quarterback. But, uh, you know, the uh, Colts had uh, many, many good players. And um, um, and a great history. The franchise, ha- you know, has a great history. And so having it here now um, and all the success that, you know, the Colts have had here in Indianapolis and, the you know, the love that most of the state have for the team. Um, it's, you know, I, I really enjoy it. And I say most of the state, nothing negative, but the, the, the Chicago area folks, a lot of them go with the Bears and the Indiana folks who live around Cincinnati go with the Bengals. And, you know, but most of the state, I believe, go with the Colts. Uh, and, um, um, did you get yourself a pair of Unitas black high tops? I didn't, I I did not. That was 90% of what made him cool. You know, now, you know, I'm, uh, uh, I'd gotten enamored with, uh, Peyton Manning when he was our quarterback. And so, uh, I was happy to have another era of great, you know, quarterbacks. And then the Colts have had all those great receivers, too, that, um, you know, uh, Mayor Ballard mentioned going way back, Raymond Barry. But if you look at today, you know, Reggie Wayne, T.Y. Hilton, Harrison, uh, you know, we've had some really great receivers to make a, a big difference in. Uh, keep the franchise moving as well as, you know, overall well-rounded team. You are listening to leaders and legends a podcast presented by veteran strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by girl scouts of central Indiana, Garmon construction leaders and legends, LLC, the grand hall and conference center at historic union station, the McGinley's golden ACE Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We are talking with John Thompson, Indianapolis businessman who was recently named chairman of the Indiana Chamber of Commerce Board of Directors. John, is there a Hoosier leader and or legend you particularly admire? Well, you know, um, if, if you look at philanthropy, uh, philanthropy's taught. And, uh, you know, I really learned to give back from Bill Mays. Um, you know, in fact, I used to be very critical of Bill. You know, I'd be, I was out here in Indy and uh, I was very focused on Mays Chemicals business. And so I was always pulling Bill to be focused on the business. We need to go visit these customers and suppliers. Come on, they want to see the CEO. And Bill's like, well, John, I got this board meeting and that board meeting. I'm like, man, who leave that stuff alone? We have to go make money, you know. And Bill's like, well, John, let, let me tell you what 
all of this means and why. And, you know, and the next thing I know, I kind of started doing it. Sam Odell would say, you know, John, uh, Bill, John need to serve on boards too. And I would say, no, nah, man, I'm too busy. And then Sam would say, yeah, I say, and Bill does the boards and I take care of the, the, the company. And Sam would say, yeah, that's not enough. You, you got to do boards too. So I, I served on Junior Achievement of Central Indiana. That was my first board here. And I, I you know, became chairman uh, later and chair. That, that was my first chairmanship too. And so something like Junior Achievement of Central Indiana for me comes under education. So that's a mentoring type organization that's mentoring and educating young people. And I was in junior achievement when I was 13, 14 years old, making and selling hangers, building a company around clothes hangers. Something like the Boy Scouts is also uh, um, comes under education and, and mentorship. But to get back to the question, certainly Bill Mays with his uh, uh, leadership and guidance in terms of philanthropy, both time, talent, and treasure. And then, you know, guys like Jim Morris, Jim's had a major influence on me in terms of uh, uh, um, giving back to the community. And, you know, Jim's focus has been more statewide, and I'm a statewide guy. I'm not just Indianapolis, my focus is across the, the state. I do things outside of the state, but I mean, my, my real uh, core focus is, is across the state. So Jim would certainly be another, another guy. Uh, Mitch Daniels had a major influence on me um, um, and from a economic development standpoint that uh, benefits everyone you know, how you make it work to really benefit everyone. Uh, you know, I, I give a, a lot of credit to, to, to Mitch Daniels there. And then there are others like here and there. I mentioned Sam Odell uh, because Sam encouraged me to serve on boards too and give back, you know, in service too, not just, uh you know, rely on Bill Mays to do it in a in a team approach. And I think that was key. Um, and then there are many others here and there that have uh, had an impact, you know, had an impact and, and influence. Mickey Maurer would certainly be one. Um, when I was buying my first company, you know, I called Mickey and two days later I was approved for a loan, you know, and I think that was key, you know, that access to capital, that confidence uh, in me, um, you know, right out the gate. I was a charter investor in the bank. And that there are many, many others, um, and I'm talking about those in Indiana, in my family, my grandfather, and then as a kid, um, and we might get to that, uh, Pastor uh, Hans Volkert Goebel, who was a Lutheran pastor that came to my neighborhood and opened a missionary church, uh, missionary under the auspices of the Lutheran Church of Maryland and uh, really changed my life in a, in a major, major way. I didn't know at the time that the impact would, would be so great, but it was a major, major transformation. So talk about that, please, for us, just for a minute, how that faith, that direction, that foundation propelled you or help propel you to the success you have achieved throughout your adult life? You, you know, you know, because of my parents and my grandfather and my grandparents, you know, I, I knew I was going to college, you know, didn't quite know how. Um, and um, I, I won't say I had a limited scope, but I was looking strictly at local schools 
you know, because of, you know, you know, our limited financial resources. So I figured I'd work my way through school. Um, but uh, Pastor Goebel, you know, he really uh, exposed those who got involved with his parish to an awful lot, you know. So he uh, formed boys and girls clubs that really traveled the country, camping out, visiting cities. We visited New York City, Detroit, Philadelphia, and then visiting colleges separately, visiting colleges, camping out in the deep, deep wilderness where you, you got to, you know, kind of scratch for everything that you need and you're out there for a week and you don't see anybody. That's how deep in the wilderness you are. Um, but the real, all of that was development, uh, human development. You know, not to mention, you know, the church service and the Christian principles, but um, the real transformation was in um, bringing in folks to help kids with SAT, pre prepare, help prepare young folks for SAT tests, um, um, visiting colleges and expanding our horizon on colleges and majors, uh, various careers and majors, um, and uh, how to get scholarships and financial aid, how to prepare yourself for scholarships and financial aid. And so we visited dozens of colleges. You know, I never would have dreamed of, of going to Cornell and Columbia um, without the change that, that he had made. And even though it was the Lutheran Church of Maryland, you know, so a uh, uh, a, a very white church with a mission in a uh, vastly predominantly black neighborhood and all of the pastors that came in were white in spite of that, uh, really working hard to make sure that uh, we learned black history. So there's programs in the evening in the church where black history is taught. And in fact, when Martin Luther King got killed in Memphis because of that strike that he went there to support. Yeah, the sanitation, was, sanitation yeah, workers. Sanitation workers. He was supposed to be in Baltimore in my neighborhood. And the core of it, his visit was with Pastor Goble because Pastor Goble was that transformative. And to give you an idea of some of the other benefits we had in that neighborhood, we had a, it was a public housing project. At one time, Perrin Mitchell, Congressman Perrin Mitchell, before he was a congressman, managed that housing project. And uh, so, so we had been exposed to, to good leadership, but we spent, weeks preparing for Martin Luther King to come to Baltimore. And the, the, the core of his visit would have been, um, or certainly a big part of it was our church, St. Augustine. And, um, um, and then he went to Memphis and, you know, got killed. Not saying it wouldn't have happened in Baltimore. Um, you know, uh, they may have set it up and, and, and done it there. Um, you know, often those in the neighborhood say, if he'd have come to Baltimore, it wouldn't have happened. And I'm like, eh, I don't know that that's accurate, even though I was 13 years old when it happened. Uh, even then, I was like, it might have still happened in Baltimore, too. So, but um, that was a major, major transformation. So at my sister's 10th grade graduation, the largest scholarship, she went to Frederick Douglass High School, so mm -hmm. you know that's a black high school. Right. The largest scholarship went to a kid who went who got a four-year scholarship to Princeton for $17,000. And then 
She graduated in 70. In 1970, that's what it cost to go to Princeton for four years was $17,000. And I told my mother then, I said, I'm going to get a larger scholarship. And two years later, when they announced mine uh, in the Civic Center, where we graduated, it was $20,000 scholarship to Cornell. And uh, Pastor Goble get a lot of credit for that. A lot of credit. How did growing up in that era, the era of sort of the the modern civil rights movement of the 50s and the 60s, early 70s, continuing on through today, of course, but but those core years, how did that shape your sense of patriotism and civic service? You know, I was a bit of a rebel then, like young kids tend to be. And I grew up in two public housing projects at the same time. I officially lived with my grandparents in Lexington Terrace and then spent, you know, plenty of time, too, with my mother and siblings in Perkins projects. So I grew up in two projects at the same time, which was a real benefit to me because one was on the west side and one was on the east side. And so that gave me the run of the city where I knew people everywhere I went. And so I could travel fairly freely through the city. And my aunt lived in Cherry Hill projects. And Lexington Terrace is the home of the wire. And the main building in the wire is the 734 building. And that's my building. I moved in there when I was four years old and left to go to Cornell. And then Perkins Project, where my mother lived, that's Yafet Koto, homicide, life on the streets. Uh, and, um, and so, and that was the nature of those projects. And, uh, you know, and I was no bookworm by any stretch of the imagination. Folks were shocked when I got a scholarship. They could not believe, believe it. They had no idea that, you know, towards my 10th, 11th, and 12th grade years, I was in the house studying. You know, they may have been in the house watching TV, but I was in the house studying. But I was still torn between the two worlds, trouble and the right path. And so, and whatever path I was on, I was a leader. So I always had that leadership. So. You know, at uh, St. Augustine, I was a leader. Uh, I was president of our uh, boys club. And then in the streets, I was a leader. So if there was trouble, I couldn't blame it on someone else while I was following this person. They were following me. And so um, and so I, I was torn also down the, the, the dark path and had problems, but Pastor Goble always came and, and bailed me out. Never had a problem that he couldn't get me out of. But um, um, and then as it related to um, civil rights and the protest, even though Martin Luther King was coming to visit my church, I was much more, I was not the turn the other cheek type. So we had an organization called Black Brotherhood Association, and there were chapters in other cities, D.C., Detroit. I was vice president of the Baltimore chapter, so I would go, expense account at 14, I would go to those other cities. And uh, we were much more radical than Martin Luther King. We were not turned the other cheek. and. Uh, uh, so we thought that that peaceful protest was was not the way. And that's not unusual for young folks because you tend to to be idealistic and uh, you're looking for utopia. And, you know, so our mantra was we were much more Malcolm X than Martin Luther King. And that wasn't unusual for many inner city young black kids. Especially after Malcolm X's assassination murder yeah. a few years before. Yeah. You mentioned two people and they kind of came together in an interesting way uh, about 
16 years ago or so, 18 years ago, and that's Bill Mays and Mitch Daniels. Bill Mays famously endorsed Mitch Daniels' run for governor in 2004, and it caused a lot of joy on my side of the political aisle and some consternation on the other side of the political aisle. Can you speculate why Mr. Mays would have endorsed Mitch Daniels and and talk about the Daniels effect on Indiana's business climate, because a lot of the guests of the Leaders and Legends podcast, including your fellow chemical engineer and Mertlow and others, have talked about that change. Um, you know, Bill, Bill's always been independent. I mean, no one's going to tell him how to think and what to say and do. He's always been independent. And, and, and I try to be that way myself. Be thoughtful, not impulsive. But then when you think it's the right thing, even though others may not share that view, you you do what's right. And so, you know, um, I think other African-Americans came around to Bill's way of thinking. If you look at Mitch's second term, where he got many more votes in traditional black democratic neighborhoods and precincts where people who would go to a booth and vote in 10 seconds were now taking two minutes because they had to split the ticket for Mitch Daniels. And, and um, Mitch Daniels carried Marion County in his 2008 reelection. Right. That, that to, to, to that point, you're exactly right. And so Bill really had the foresight to see what a guy with Mitch's vision for Indiana could do. So Bill was clearly right. Um, and um, so I think Bill's independence, I think, was, was really one of his strong suits. And then Mitch's in terms of what's what Mitch has done for Indiana, I mean, it's just everywhere in this state. And you look at where we are today and the things that we're able to work on now because of the things that Mitch helped us fix, you know, 15, 20, uh, 17 years ago, going back to 2005, 2004, 2005 and on. You know, um, often you'll hear people talk about right to work. Um, when we met with Jeff Immel, uh, GE CEO, he told us if we didn't have right to work, we would never have heard about his, his engine plant that he built in West Lafayette until it was publicly announced going to another state. He said that you had to have that. You know, so if you look at all that was done to lower taxes, lower regulation, um, make us more cost effective, that's allowed us to become much more of a business state and then put us on that track to triple A bond rating where we can make investments in our state with federal dollars or with our own dollars because we can borrow at su such cheap rates. And then, uh, you know, balancing the budget and going on to have a $2 billion surplus that also supports that AAA bond rating, creating the IEDC, a quasi-governmental organization that had much more freedom to develop and implement economic development strategies than a wholly owned government agency could do. And then when we found even that the IEDC had limitations, like owning stock in companies, mm -hmm. then Elevate Ventures was formed as an independent company, an independent organization, a nonprofit. So 21 fund dollars that are appropriated by the uh, legislature come through the IEDC, but it goes to, to Elevate. And then Elevate can make investments. Number one, they have the people to 
really do the due diligence, but they can make the investments that we can then, you know, share in ownership as citizens of, of Indiana with the 21 fund dollars and get a huge return. Like, and we've had about 35 exits, profitable exits from the ventures that we've invested in. Well, you know, all of that was birthed under Mitch Daniels. I mean, all of that. I mean, it's just totally transformative. And so when you look across the country, and it didn't just benefit Indiana, and that's a good thing, because we're all, you know, patriots of, you know, and citizens of, of the USA. So I'm happy to see that other uh, economic development, state economic development organizations have borrowed many of those principles. And so all American citizens are benefiting to a degree. Now we have competition between the states, just like, you know, Ohio just got that Intel chip plant. And, uh, you know, I'm happy for Ohio. Wish it was here, you know, but I'm still happy for Ohio. But Ohio change their economic development principles and shape them much more along the lines of uh, Mitch Daniels' vision. And, uh, and so now they benefit. Now that chip plant is only 85 miles from the Indiana border. So many Indiana citizens will work at that chip plant um, in the coming years when it's built and developed. And those will be $35 and up in our jobs. And uh, so that's a good thing to see that come to the Midwest. But um, um, Elevate Ventures is always one of, it's the top VC organization in the Great Lake states. I mean, that all was birthed under, under Mitch Daniels. Now the 21 fund had been around pre-Mitch, it goes back to 1999, but the change in how we deploy the dollars changed under Mitch and uh, has made a tremendous, tremendous difference when you look at the number of companies that have been formed, grown, sold, and the, 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 the investment dollars that came into Indiana being reinvested back into businesses that start here in the state. You have a few more minutes on the Leaders and Legends podcast with CEO philanthropist, entrepreneur, member of so many boards, I, we can't name them all. And that's our guest and our friend, John Thompson. As you drive around or travel around the state or the city of Indianapolis, what do you wish we were better at? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of the accomplishments that we've made. I think COVID has set all cities back. So the vibrancy and uh, liveliness that had come to Indianapolis, and it's still here. I mean, you know, I, I was downtown for March Madness and the football championship. And even before that, the Big Ten, I mean, it's still lively, even with COVID. But um, um, so I am very pleased with the accomplishments here in Indiana, not just downtown, but throughout the nine county region. When I look at all that's happened in Fishers and Carmel and now uh, uh, Hancock County, what they're doing in McCordsville and, you know, even down in Johnson County, uh, Greenwood's come a, come a long way and, you know, uh, 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 Hendricks County. I mean, Boone County. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a nine counties of, of development. And I was fortunate to chair the first regional cities. And so I had a firsthand view of the before, during, and after of what happened in those three regions fought, uh, centered around the 11 counties around Allen County, you know, Fort Wayne, South Bend, Mishawaka, Elkhart, and then, you know, Evansville, you know, Warwick, Vandenberg County. What happened there uh, before, during, and after? And I'm telling you, those communities are totally transformed and they're 
still on a heck of a trajectory. And so I'm very happy to see those three communities got $50 million again in the in the ready grant with what I call, you know, as an old timer, regional cities too, although it's much broader than that. Um, and then several other regions. I mean, $500 million went into these regions and I think it's going to be, you know, transformative. But, but in terms of what else would I like to see, I want to see more new business formation. And I want to see more gazelles form. That's the really fast growing businesses with the high paying jobs. And everyone doesn't qualify for those jobs. But those kinds of businesses grow entrepreneurs because those businesses get sold. Those managers and employees share in the liquidity event. And for the most part, they stick around, reinvest and grow more jobs. So as long as we can continue as a state to provide the right kind of workforce training, and we can train the workers so that the high paying jobs stay here. Um, but, 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 but the core of it, we want to attract companies. We want new plants to be built here, but we want to start and grow our own businesses, fast growing businesses with high paying jobs. And so I want to see more of that, not just in, in, in central Indiana, but across the state. And that's going to require broadband. And we have to deploy more broadband. And, and sometimes it's going to look foolish because we're spending a million dollars to take broadband to 200 homes. But, you know, I don't know who one of the kids, you know, is in, 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 in the 200 homes that might make a real difference for our state, whether it's a rural area or an inner city area where they don't have enough broadband. Uh, so. We've reached the point at the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Mr. John Thompson, are you ready? Yes. I'm, and, and I'm not going to ask you, has anyone called you up and said, you know, you did a great job at Georgetown? That's not one of the questions. <laughs> Number one, what was your first job? My first job, um, I was an independent entrepreneur. So at eight years old, I sold fruits and vegetables off horses and wagons in Baltimore. It's called A-Rabby, and they still do it in the inner city today. Number two, what was your first concert? The Temptations. Number three, if 1968, you could, the temptation. I, I wasn't going to ask you the year, but I was, I probably would have guessed pretty close. I was 14. So I'm telling you my age. <laughs> Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of a book for other people. Because books that I read a lot, others won't <laughs> read those. Uh, so, um, so I'm trying to think of books for other people. Um, you know, for me, it's Valuation by, by Tom Kohler, but, uh, but most people aren't going to read that book. <laughs> well, that's all right. Number <laughs> yeah, so, four. But that's, but that's the book for me, you know, Valuation by Tom Kohler. But that's not reading for everyone. So you go ahead. I may think of another book that, that might help uh, others more broadly. If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Hmm. Many of the events that I enjoy, uh, You know, I, I, I guess when the soldiers came home from World War II, that would have been something to see. Um, I never want to be, you know, where I'm back in 1945, but to be on Fifth Avenue when the soldiers came marching down Fifth Avenue after World War II, that, that'd be a sight to see.
It's a great answer. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, discuss anything you'd like, whom would you choose? Oh, you know, I'm funny about those kinds of things. It's, I mean, I always think if I want to do that, I could, you know, maybe not two hours, but I could get time with them, you know. Um, you know, for me, it, it might be Warren Buffett. But if I really want to get time with Warren Buffett, I can. He's a fellow Columbia MBA. And uh, I'm very active with the business school. So I could make that happen. Maybe not two hours, but 30 minutes, I could make it happen. So, so but I'll leave it at Warren Buffett. <laughs> you have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been businessman, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and all-around wonderful human being. We've had many conversations before this podcast. They've all been delightful. I'm very, very grateful for your time and your friendship. John Thompson, please, please don't ever leave our city or our state. We need you. Well, thank you, Robert, for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you and and uh, enjoying the podcast uh, creation. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.